Business has always been about turning a profit, making money. But can it stand for something more? Something beyond dollars and cents? We think so. We think that today, business has a higher calling, a purpose to be fair and just, to do right by their workers, customers, communities, and the environment. And it turns out companies successful doing that also do better for their bottom line. When you see the Just Capital seal, it means this company is a force for good. Visit JustCapital.com to learn more. Welcome to Healing Conversations with Pastor Dave Roberts. We don't talk anymore. We don't talk anymore. Do you wish your relationships were deeper and communicating was easier? Do you leave conversations feeling frustrated and empty? Healing Conversations helps us reveal our truest and deepest identities. Dave Roberts, Senior Pastor of Montrose Church and author of Healing Conversations, brings us insight on how we can deepen our love for each other by way of good communication. Let's work on this together. And now, here's Pastor Dave. Well, good morning and welcome. You're listening to Healing Conversations, and we're talking today about imagination. We've been in this conversation now uh, this is our third week. We talked about imagining joy and then imagining redemption. And today we're talking about imagining the culture. And so uh, just coming back to this question, and that is, uh, what does your imagination work on? What do you think about? What do you imagine? And my premise is basically just a self-observation. I tend to imagine negative things, fearful things, as opposed to uh, how I used to imagine as a kid, you know, good things, the future, hopeful, optimism. And so how is your imagination working? And today to imagine a culture that might be better than the culture in which we live or the one that we propagate ourselves, uh, a culture that we would strive for, that we desire to live in, makes a difference. What makes you afraid? What is it that really scares you? Uh, I think there's a lot of things that cause a little bit of fear in us. And some things are really worth fearing. I grew up in uh, Texas, and in Texas we have a lot of uh, snakes, and a lot of snakes are poisonous. And so I grew up with a, a great fear of snakes and a dislike for snakes. And I know some of you probably have a pet. Uh, I'm not a fan. And then we, you know, we've had a long-term partnership going in Africa, and uh, I have made this observation. Uh, our friends in Africa, they don't like snakes either. And uh, I question this. In fact, they don't tend to like wildlife a lot. Uh, we've invited our friends on safari. They're like, yeah, I don't need to do that. And when you really kind of question that, they're like, well, here's the thing. Uh, most snakes will kill you. You know, around here, there's not a lot of friendly snakes. There's not a lot of harmless snakes. And, and for that matter, animals can also do you a lot of damage. And seems like that just, you know, if you live around danger like that, you become much more fearful in a healthy way. And what do you fear? There are things worth being afraid of, and there are things that probably are not worth being afraid of. How many of us are afraid of what we cannot see? Daniel Kahneman, uh, in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, writes these words, We can be blind to the obvious. We can also be blind to our blindness. Are you afraid of what you cannot see? And I know you immediately think I'm talking about critters or things like that, snakes or whatever. No, he's really speaking about what about our own blindness, blindness to our own issues, our own behaviors. That's kind of scary. Helen Keller once said, the only thing worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. That's a frightening thought. 
I can see, but I'm not sure I see clearly. I'm not sure that what I see is accurate. Demosthenes, the ancient times, said, Nothing is easier than self-deceit. For what every person wishes, that they also believe to be true. That's pretty good. Let's try that one more time. Nothing is easier than self-deceit. For what every person wishes, that they also believe to be true. We're really good at believing what we want to believe. We know psychologically, and now that we've studied so much of the function of the brain, we, we know that we experience information that is dissonant with our beliefs. So anything that kind of goes against what we think, what we believe, whether that's political or cultural or whatever it is, our brain experiences that as pain. Dissonant information, our pain experiences, and it triggers our fight or flight response. So when we hear information contrary to what we think or what we believe, we don't just sit back and go, hmm, let me think about that. I could be wrong. In fact, our brains have the ability to shed information that is dissonant to us that we don't like and to hang on to information we do like. In study after study, you can throw thousands of facts at people, hundreds of facts, and they will weed through them to find the one or two that agree with what they already think. That's what confirmation bias really is. Our brain's ability to shed things that disagree or create dissonance in us. And so this self-deceit becomes a big issue. The great playwright Tennessee Williams once wrote, Nobody sees anybody truly, but all through the flaws of their own egos. That's the way we all see each other in life. Vanity, fear, desire, competition, all such distortions within our own egos condition our vision of those in relation to us. Add to those distortions to our own egos and the corresponding distortions in the egos of others, and you can see how cloudy the glass must become through which we look at each other. Just that admission to say, I don't really see others clearly, is kind of a mess that I have such strong opinions and make such harsh statements or such strong criticisms or share such gossip, and yet I really don't see all that clearly. John Milton in Paradise Lost writes, The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Those are powerful thoughts. What are you afraid of? Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid my mind and my brain might not be telling me that I might not be seeing what I need to see. I, I might be missing something that matters. Let this little line sink in from blogger Ume Hawk. Meanness makes you dumb. Not all people who are dumb stay mean, but all people who are mean stay dumb. Why does meanness make you dumb? Because to grow, mature, develop, you must learn. But you cannot learn if you are mean, because learning means accepting things from others, developing a sense not just of curiosity, but of gratitude, humility, courage, and celebration. Therefore, every instant that you are busy scorning and belittling others, you cannot learn, and so you are not growing. That's a lot. Does any of that scare you? Does it at least make you question how right you might or might not be? It matters when you try to have a discussion about darkness and light and you talk about culture and you talk about right 
and wrong. John, in his writing, he's preoccupied with the conversations about darkness and light. It goes all the way back to the opening of his gospel. This is what he writes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all human beings. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right at the start, he goes back into a language process of the creation, Genesis 1, in the beginning, and he goes to the very first creation moment, light and darkness, the separation of light and darkness. The trend continues in his letter in 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Light and darkness. John's preoccupied with these two concepts. He equates light with love and darkness with hate. He writes about it and almost in a contradictory way, but listen to them and ask yourself what it is that John wants us to understand as he thinks about this culture of the kingdom. 1 John 2, 7, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard, yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but eats a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So John has a few thoughts that he's conveying. Number one, he's saying the command is not new. And this seems a little contradictory here because he's going to say in a minute, but it is new. The command is not new. The command to love is not new. It has been a part of our understanding. It's a part of the Levitical law. It's a part of the tradition of the rabbinic tradition. Love others. We're supposed to love each other. We're supposed to love God and we're supposed to love each other. Even the Ten Commandments are broken down over these two topics, loving God and loving others. How do we love God? Don't have any other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. How do we love each other? You don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. These things that we understand, it's not new. The whole original creedal statement of Israel faith centers on this teaching to love the Lord with all our hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This creedal statement, yeah, the Shema, is a part of the understanding. This is not a new command. The Jews have been speaking it and living it. In response to the question about who is our neighbor, when Jesus says you're to love the Lord your God and your neighbor as self, and someone says, well, who's my neighbor? He tells the story of the good Samaritan. He tells the story of what it means to love others, even though they may not be like you, they may not believe what you believe or, or live like you live or come from where you come from. Who is a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The one who showed him mercy. You go be that person. How do you do that? You show mercy and love. It's not new. And John says, and yet it is new. It is new. It's new in the sense that Jesus makes it new. 
And we're going to go to break, and when we come back, I'll explain exactly how he makes it new. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. We're talking about imagining a culture. And John's talking about the contrast between darkness and light, light being love and grace and mercy and care and and darkness, hatred, you know, meanness, pettiness. And he's saying, you know, go to the light, live in the light, not in the darkness. And so he says, it's not a, it's not a new thing. You've always known this. We all know this. Your parents told you this the first when you were old enough to even possibly understand. Don't treat your sister that way. Don't act like that. Don't say that. Don't talk back to me. That's not the way to behave. We we were learning early on. Don't dis, don't be disrespectful. We were learning very early. This isn't new. Things work better. Families work better. Life works better. People like you better. It's better for you to be a nice person, a loving person, a kind person. It's not new. It wasn't new to John's listeners. It wasn't new to his readers. It wasn't new. It had been woven into the culture. It had been woven into the rabbinic traditions and the Levitical law. And yet it is new, he says. And it's new in this sense. In John 13, we have these words from Jesus, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. That's a fascinating verse. They'll know that you are my disciples by your pristine theologies. No. By your creedal statements. No. By your doctrinal statements. No. By how many times you attend church. No. By how beautiful the building is. No. They'll know you are my disciples by your love by your love, by the quality of how you care for people. Pretty simple. So why is that new? Well, here's what's new. As I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. What was a value in the culture? I believe we ought to love each other is now a virtue. I have shown you what it looks like in real life. It's not just a value you keep in your head. This is how you put it into practice. In fact, John 13 is... is the chapter in which Jesus has just washed the feet of the disciples. It's the chapter in which he's entered a room which the, where the disciples are arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They still think Jesus is going to become some kind of king and there's going to be a political seat for them and they're going to have power and they're arguing about who gets to sit at his right hand and who gets to sit at his left hand. And they're so mad at each other that they refuse to wash one another's feet. Culturally, they probably wash one another's feet dozens of times. They were not of the economic strata that would have had servants to wash their feet. The common practice would have been that they took turns washing one another's feet when they entered a home. It was just a part of the routine. It wasn't a lot of stigma to it. It was just a part of it. But today, their pride has gotten twisted up in a way that they refuse. And so Jesus, he decides to wash their feet. He demonstrates and then he sits down and he says, do you understand what has happened here? You call me Lord and teacher and rightly so, for that's who I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A new command I give you, that you love one another. 
And you do it in the way I do. It's gotten very practical. It's not just a value you hold in your head. It's now a virtue that you practice. And this is how you practice it. This is what it looks like. You serve. You care. You swallow your pride and you take care of people. You do what they need to do, no matter how distasteful it might seem to you. That's what makes for a better world, a better culture, a better place. We're not above caring for each other. And we don't just do it philosophically in our minds. We do it practically in very real ways. And I love this part, you know. Well, I am loving you. It's for your own good. Listen, people know the difference between being loved and not being loved. They understand. You know, your dog knows the difference. Your cat knows the difference. If your pet knows the difference between, you know, loving and not loving, trust me, people do. People do. The third thing that he points out is the darkness is passing. The darkness is giving way to the light. That we uh, participate in this new culture, we become agents of light in this kingdom. Do you ever think about that? What impact are you having on the world around you? The vision of the biblical story is that each one of us is the light of the world. We are invited to be a light. We are invited to push back darkness. We're invited to wake up in the morning and level set. You know, I'm not just here to perpetuate my own existence. I'm not here because I think that the U.S. government is the be-all to end-all. I'm not here because... Uh, I'm going to pick all the things right and I'm going to despise the people who pick wrong. I'm here because today I'm a part of a narrative in deep time that God so loved the world that he gave his only son and he invited me to be a part of that kingdom of light. And I have a choice. I have a choice to wake up and go out into the world today and to be an ambassador and an agent of light that I can be a part of a cosmic solution to push back the darkness. And I don't have to do that in some grand way. I don't have to carry a placard. I don't have to do I, – I can do it as simple as smiling, meeting someone's you know, face, their, their look, looking them in the eye, saying hello, asking how they're doing. It's not complicated to be caring and loving and to be an agent. When I put virtue into the world, the darkness is pushed back. We are not helpless. You are not helpless. We don't need to wait on one more thing. We don't need to wait for other things to get fixed. We don't need to wait for the politicians to solve the problems. We don't need to wait till the right people get in office and the wrong people get out of office, whatever side you're on. We are invited to practice a visible obedience of being ambassadors of light. And then the fourth thing he mentions is there's a hatred, that hatred is darkness. He'll break this thought down in two different ideas. Uh, one is the virtue of love, and the other is the vice of hatred. So he's saying, you know, you're to embrace the virtue of love, and you're to get rid of the vice of hatreds. We're not only to embrace this visible, active virtue of love, but we're to weaken and let go of the vice of hatred. Hatred is darkness, he said. Hatred is characterized by actions that act in harmful and hurtful ways to our brothers and sisters, to the people around us. When we're acting in ways that are harmful and hurtful to the people around us, we're participating in hatred. Now, 
when we think about it, most of us don't consider that our behaviors rise to the level of hatred. You, hatred is a big word. It's a harsh word. Our behaviors are not so distasteful. Others might be hateful, but we're not hateful. But the New Testament calls us out and says, even if when we are angry with each other, we need to check that. We need to be careful with even our anger. Paul seems to elevate this new way of thinking. We are to weaken the vices of our negative interactions. I'm going to say it again. We're not just supposed to be agents of love and light. We're supposed to weaken our behaviors that create negative interaction. He says discord, jealousy, gossip, disorder, slander are vices that give darkness, and they take away from this culture that we want to live in, not just as a whole country, but in our own homes and in our own families. 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I am afraid when I come to you, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage and selfish ambition and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder. Yikes. There's a lot of that going on in our world. In Galatians, he adds a few more things. Galatians 5.19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Now listen, in that same list, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Who knew that attitudes were just as bad as acting out in immoral ways? And in case we are still thinking that our level of behavior don't rise to this level of hatred, he gives us an almost overwhelming call in Ephesians 4.29. We've talked about it a lot on this segment. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it benefits those who listen. That's a lot. The fifth thing he points out is darkness makes you blind. He says, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. What scares you? What scares you? There's a lot of things in life to be afraid of, but maybe none is more frightening than the fact that I could be self-deceitful. That I could, because of my feelings and because of my attitudes, that I could become blind to the truth around me. Studies tell us that every human being has 3.4 blind spots. We can't see this about ourselves. Here's the tricky part. Every person you know knows what yours are. They see them. They're not blind to them. They're just blind to us. And that's a little bit of a scary thought. Demosthenes, remember this quote, nothing is easier than self-deceit. For what every person wishes that they also believe to be true. Humility Stepping back, John Milton in Paradise Lost writes, The mind is its own place and in itself can make heaven a hell or a hell of heaven. And you and I have this opportunity. We have an opportunity to create a culture, a culture of light and not darkness. Are you? Is that what's happening in your story, in your life, in your world, in your relationships, in your own home and family? You can't control everything. Are we controlling what we can control? Are we being ambassadors of light and hope and love and grace? Or is there a lot of tension? We're going to take a break. 
We're going to continue to talk about this. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClenahan is in studio. This is KBC 790. How you doing, Eric? Good morning. What's happening? Doing good. Good. So I'm coming up on um, April 1st. It'll be 17 years that I've worked for you. Wow. And I did not know that you were afraid of snakes. You did not know that I was afraid of snakes. Did not know. Interesting. Yeah, I have a lot of snake stories. So uh, I think that's partly growing up in Texas. But uh, Uh, my uncle bought a ranch when I was probably uh, in high school. I was in my high school years. And so he would say, uh, you know, you want to go with me this weekend? Because we got, you know, in his words, we have a mess of snakes that we got to get rid of. And indigenous to Texas, as north central Texas especially, you know, there are two real nasty breeds of snakes, mm. water moccasins. And there's a lot of water in Texas. Especially that sounds like something that you buy for your kids when you're going to a <laughs> water park. <laughs> it is not. So they can run around and yeah, not get yeah. their feet hurt. Yeah, it is not. And no? copperheads. Uh. And so, uh, you know, you learn pretty quick that... Uh, you know, the water moccasins are kind of passive, but copperheads are mean and mm. will chase you and they don't like you. They don't yeah. like you. Anyway, so I had a lot of experiences in uh, uh, trying to clean the property of its indigenous snake population, which is probably there's probably somebody out there that now I've uh, I'm politically incorrect. But uh, back in the day, <laughs> we just knew that if we were going to have the kids running around on the ranch, gotta get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, got to get rid of them. <laughs> So, so is it like, was it a innate fear? Like, did you fear them before experiencing oh, yeah, them yeah. or yeah, was yeah. it because of experience? Yeah. No, I never liked them. And, uh, yeah. we, uh, you know, the house that I lived in growing up uh, was next to a park that had a lake. And so water and snakes go really hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there were always snakes around the house. In fact, when I was at the one of my earliest memories as a kid, I was at church. And we were playing outside after church, and I was, we, I don't know, playing hide-and-seek, and I was standing against a wall, and everyone was screaming, and I looked down, and I was standing on a snake. So that was my earliest memory yeah. of, you know, so. My grandpa had a house uh, in Palm Springs, vacation home when we were growing up, and yeah. rattlesnakes out there, and they were known to go through the pipes and come up the toilets. Yeah, that's not okay. So every time you went to the bathroom, you had to... Yeah, that's not okay. You had to check. Thanks thanks for telling me that story. I appreciate that. Does that that help you? It gives me something else to think about. Snakes, I just immediately thought, you know, I've always thought of you as a real-life Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Really? Wow. I will tell you a funny funny story. Uh, We were in uh, Swaziland, Aswatini, uh, a few years ago, and we were on a pre-trip. So we were looking at projects for the future. The whole team hadn't arrived yet. So it was just me and a few other people. And we went into this building, and laying in the middle floor was a little snake. It was probably three feet long. And I turned to say something to our Swazi friends who were with us, and they were gone. I mean, they, they were gone. <laughs> and I and I said, what is going on? And they're like, hey, I'm not going in there. And so we were really fascinated. And we went in, and we were kind of poking around and looking at the snake. And, and it set up, and it was a cobra. It was a small cobra. And uh, and then I'm thinking, as I'm standing there, not too far away, I'm thinking, this is really dumb. Mm. This is really not a good choice. 
And uh, eventually, you know, somebody came and dispatched the snake. I like to tell this part of the story. Someone came in with a board and clubbed the snake over the head repeatedly. And then the Lord called him home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, so that's uh, I have several uh, snake stories from Africa and uh, and they're not none of them are good. Yeah. You know, the cobras, the black mambas. Uh, it is a snake rich environment and uh, yeah so anyway I, I don't I couldn't I, I don't have like a lot of tangible things I'm afraid of yeah does that make sense sure like I more fear like well you're an urbanite that's that's very true yeah I was I was processing would I fear snakes if I'm never around snakes right <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean have I thing. just avoided things that I would be afraid of yeah but like you know like the the my thoughts terrify me yeah you know what there i mean you go. Yeah. like the idea the idea of what if you die and it's just lights out and your consciousness is gone sure. terrifying cold sweats yeah if i start thinking about that at night i will not go to sleep right those are the sort of thoughts that that scare me those yeah. are my fears annihilation yeah 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 totally well uh just so you know you're welcome to the human race i mean that's there is a there is a very deeply embedded fear of such a thing yeah yeah. So, but and like I'm not, for instance, I'm not afraid of having a heart attack. Yeah, I'm afraid of my daughter having to watch me have a heart attack. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Like those are those are the kind of fears that I yeah. walk around with every day. Yeah, it's interesting. But snakes you know. are scary too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's, uh, well, I think you know that the. I guess when we get into this discussion, you know, and you start to think about how frightening it is to think of what you don't see. Yeah. And I, you know, for me, I think I, I I mean, all of us form ourselves around the ideas we think are right. Mm -hmm. If we didn't think we were right, we would think something else, but we do think we're right. And we, we embrace our beliefs, whether it's our politics or our opinions about culture, whatever it is, we embrace it. Uh, What's issues of faith, you know, we embrace it because we believe we're right. Yeah. So to me, when you get into this conversation and you think, what if I'm not right? What if there are things about how I see the world that are I'm blind to? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, oh, I mean, that's a deep fear for yeah, sure. Of absolutely. Mine, of not being right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I suppose, I mean, I'll ask you this question. I mean, what do you think the anecdote is for this reality that, you know, we, we don't see clearly. We're mm-hmm. influenced by a myriad of things. Yeah. I mean, I think the first antidote has to be humility. Yeah. It has to be agreeing that we, that we're in this place all together. Yeah. Right. That I don't know and you don't know and nobody knows. Yeah. Let's start from that point. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we go back to the, the book upon which this little segment is based healing, I think sometimes we forget, oh yeah, healing conversations. Yeah. Yeah, There's a book. Hey. Hey. Somebody ought to write a book about that. Uh, and some sometimes people ought to read a book. I don't know. I mean, that's just an idea. Um, after writing one, you find out people don't really buy that many books and they don't really read that many books. So anyway, yeah. but, you know, part of the conversation in the book is about that reality of saying, I need to respect people at the level that I believe every person I meet has something to teach me. Mm-hmm. You know, I and I know I believe a lot of things, but I don't know very many things. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a humility that says, yeah, I, I can only see what I can see. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can't, you know, break through that. But being willing to listen, being willing to ask good questions, being willing to not, 
invalidate people just because their experience is different than my own. Right. I was in a counseling session recently with a young couple about to get married, and we were talking about this of, you know, how do you do conflict management in a marriage? And I try to stress this principle with kids, and that is to say, just remember this, you are each going to have an experience of your conflict. Yeah. And here's the best thing you can do. How did you experience it? What happened to you? Mm -hmm. And now here's what happened to me. What happened to you? If we go in believing there's one reality and we're arguing about what that reality is, we're not going to get far. But if we recognize that if we had conflict, then there are at least two realities and we ought to pay attention to both of them because both of them probably have some misunderstandings and some valid things. And I think that's true in general in our right. relationships. If I go into it thinking, I don't know the answer and I'm not right and everybody else is wrong, but I have this experience of it. I'm entitled to that. I can talk about my experience, mm -hmm. but I need to also be willing to listen to how other people are experiencing it. Right, right. So, yeah, but we just don't have a culture that embraces that. None. Even if, even if we know it to be true, that's not what we're going to click on. That's not what we're going to read we're still going to try to pursue those definitive right. answers yeah. and things. Well, and, and we have become activists. You know, we are so busy fighting for what we have been taught is the right answer mm -hmm. that we, we've lost our ability to reason. We mm -hmm. don't, you know, we don't listen to reason. We don't have meaningful discussions. Politics today, we don't really hear people reasoning out arguments for why we should do this instead of that. We're just... You know, it's more about charging ahead and, you know, the people that are the most aggressive get the most applause. And I, I don't know. It's just a different world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If we actually fix that issue, then what will we talk about next cycle? Yeah. <laughs> next voting cycle. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that the book talks about is the middle ground. You know, the truth likely lies between you and I. Somewhere between you and I, you you probably don't have it all and I don't have it all, but somewhere mm -hmm. between us is it. And here's what's really concerning about where we are in our culture. Most good answers come because we are willing to wrestle with the problems. Mm -hmm. We're willing to listen to each other. You know, there's an old story about the CEO of General Motors and he says, you know, he told the story that if they're in a meeting and they vote for something and there's nobody speaking in opposition, they will table the matter mm -hmm. because if nobody's there to speak in opposition, they're missing something important. And I think that mentality has been lost. You know, we don't want conflict. We don't want people speaking against something uh, instead of really saying, you know, you see things I don't see. You know, there is a real uh, collaborative kind of synergy that happens. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. What you bring matters. What I bring matters. Let's talk together. Let's reason together. Let's arrive at things. Let's experiment. Let's not be afraid to, to try and fail. You know, I, I think we've lost a lot of that in our culture. Mm. And it, it limits our sense of well-being. Yeah. You know, I mean, when's the last time you really wanted to have it? You and I know this. We do this. We work with a lot of people. They're known entities. We work with them over and over. We see the same folks a lot, you know, uh, and there's a whole lot of people that we go, well, we just can't talk about that here. Yeah. You know, that is not a topic I can talk about with this person. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to talk about this and not that, you know. So, well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to jump into this uh, idea of a new culture. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Healing Conversations on KABC 790. I'm Dave Roberts. Eric McClenahan is in studio. We're talking about imagining this culture of light where we embrace light and we push back darkness. What questions popped into your head as we were chatting today? Before we talk about a new culture, quickly, how do you see our culture now? Yeah. You know what I mean? I kind of feel like maybe we live in a culture that is predominantly good. Yeah. But we have systems, social media and things and algorithms that push the negativity forward. Yeah. I think people are generally good and I think people want good things. I think most people across the spectrum want good things. And I think they want a lot of the same things. Yeah. They don't all agree on how to get them. Mm -hmm. But I think we are a fear-driven culture Mm -hmm. and fear tends to drive a lot of suspicion and suspicion tends to drive a lot of negativity. And I think, you know, we knew this a long time ago. So let's just let's just flash back to, you know, the 1970s or 80s. At every checkout stand in the United States was the National Enquirer. And it was the gossip rag that you were kind of embarrassed to buy because of the sensational yellow journalism contained therein. Terrible stories about people, most of them probably not necessarily true. <laughs> but it was housed in one central spot. Or you could go watch, you know, some show that would feature that. Yeah. Now, it seems like that kind of yellow journalism is, it is the mainstream of what we are given. Yeah. Bad news, negativity, the story of what corruption and what people are doing behind closed doors. You know, that used to have to be isolated into a very specific kind of genre, but mm-hmm. now it's very dominant. And it looks exactly like everything else. And it looks exactly yeah. like, and the other thing that I think, and you and I have talked about this because I'm not a fan of some of the people that have perpetuated this, but somewhere along the way, we started to create shows that were entertainment-based but represented themselves as news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And we raised a generation of people who were laughing at things they thought to be true, mm-hmm. but weren't. Yep. And they were portrayed as true. Sure. And now that's kind of what news has become. News has become entertainment. It's no longer a documentary sort of, here are the facts. This is what happened. This is what we know right now. This is what we don't know. You know, there used to be, you know, you probably don't remember this, but there used to be on the news, you'd have the news, you'd have the weather, you'd have the sports, and then you would have an editorial. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an editorial. It's not necessarily the opinion of this station, da 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 And then the station manager would come on and read an editorial. The opinion piece was isolated and identified as a separate segment. Mm-hmm. Now, it's all opinion. It's all editorializing. There is no this documentary piece. And that, that impacts our culture in a big way. Uh, I say this often. You've probably heard me say it. Here's what I read. I don't know if it's true or not. You know, I wish we could get real meaningful statistics about this. I wish we could know the truth about that. I read this. I don't know if it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw this. I don't know if it's true. So so I think we are in a place where we're kind of fear-driven and it's the least common denominator. And what I think what's happening in the news as entertainment is we're all working a demographic. Yeah. You know, if you're more conservative, you know which stations to go to to get your information. Sure. If you're more progressive, you know which places. If you're more extreme, there are plenty of outlets that will offer that on both ends of that spectrum. Right. 
Uh, we've become very specialized about capturing a demographic. We have very little concern for are we telling the truth? Right. Are we telling it accurately? Right. You know, so. In uh, this idea of <clears throat> this new commandment, love each other. And then Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Yeah. Jesus loved me by dying on the cross for my sins. Right. I love you, Dave, but I am not able to do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it seems like a very high target to sure. hit to love people as Jesus loved them. What does that like really mean? But I think to simplify that is, number one, your death for me would probably only be meaningful in a very specific set of circumstances. <laughs> yeah. So, so whereas Jesus' death for others was meaningful in a cosmic sort of theological significant way. So I think what he's talking about is much more practical, which is epitomized by this. Whoever wants to be greatest among you should be the servant of all. It should be about service, which is related to his death, but that's not your path. That was his path. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a one-for-one one love as I loved. It's a one-for-one one love philosophically in this sense. Mm. You know, lay down your life for others. Yeah. And I think when we become parents, we get that. We see how we, you know, you said earlier about your fear about having you know, her experience something yeah. that's more frightening to you than something you would go through. Right. Well, you know, that is, that is the depth, probably the most powerful human loving relationship as a parent and a child. And, and so I think Jesus is just saying, care for people. And that, you know, I consider you, my children, I care for you in sacrificing myself for your well being. And, yeah. the, you know, the world could do with a lot more of that spirit. Yeah. You know, I'm here to serve. I'm here I, to serve. I also I've been thinking a lot about our friend Cutter Calloway, yep. who's a professor at Fuller Seminary. Doctor. Doctor. Doctor Cutter Calloway. Doctor Cutter Calloway. Brilliant um, dude, by the way. Insanely brilliant. He's writing a new book called Hostable. Right. And that was one of Jesus's main attributes was that he was hostable, that yes. people invited him. Didn't have a home. Into didn't have home. a place. Yeah. He didn't invite people into his home, but people consistently invited him into their home. I've been thinking about that so much lately. Yeah. Because so many people, when they read verses like this about love, they say, well, I am loving them by calling out their sin right. and, you know, doing all these things. And if that's what Jesus was doing yeah. when he was going over to people's homes, I don't think he would have been invited back. Well, here's the thing, though, I, because he does at times call them out. Sure. But he has been invited. <laughs> He's been invited into a space. And, and, I, and I think that's really important. You know, I get invited at times into places where I can say, well, I'm not sure this is good for you. Mm. I'm not sure this is the best choice for you. But I don't just call them up and go, hey, I've noticed this about you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to be invited. And I think you do, you earn the right to speak into people's lives, not because you think you know everything and they don't, but because they want you to be a part. You've become trustworthy. They know you're not condemning to them. They know you're helping. They know you're encouraging, you know. And so I think there is a piece of the being hostable in which you do get to speak things, but that's because you've been invited into this inner space where you get to have more meaningful conversations. Mm. There's too many people pontificating. You know, standing right. outside of relationship and saying, do this and don't do that and you shouldn't do this, as opposed to going, I got to be in relationship with people before. Yeah, I mean, which ultimately is what bothers me about the the people on the street corners with the with yeah. the signs and the megaphones. Oh. They haven't been invited into that no. space right. to be able to talk to people mm -hmm. in a way that's going right. to work. Yep. I don't know. 
Well, and when Paul says, I've become all things to all people, you know, at what point do we not recognize that being understanding, integrating ourselves, moving into spaces in which we are in relationship with people? I, I've told this story before. Years ago, I went to the Rose Parade, and all of those folks come down as the parade begins, a whole bunch of people carrying big banners, repent, you know, there's all these different messages about apocalyptic end of the world and, you know, getting right. And people boo. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just like, you know. But the year I went, one of the years I went, the very first band was the Salvation Army Band. Instead of carrying banners, yeah. these are people that serve the city. Yeah. They're people that they've been here forever. You want to find them on Monday, you go down the street because they're right there. And they're yeah. feeding people that are hungry and they're taking care of people in need. And the difference in that contrast of a group of people that have poured their life into a city, you know, I mean, they are the outpost in this city that does that work week after week, year after year. And these other people that have nothing at stake except, you know, I think that's what Jesus wants. Serve like I serve, you know, you know, love like that. This is weird to me. (laughs) This is Paul writing to the Corinthians, right? Yeah. How he's saying... Look, I'm afraid that when I get there, you guys have been messing up. Yeah. It, it Was that like, did he have reason to believe that? Sure. That's so like out of left, if reads is out of left field, but yeah. well, did he, did he think all that of he his was letters, walking into that? Oh, yeah. All of his letters are in response to problems. So somebody oh. has come to him and said, here's what's happening. And so he's basically calling them out to go, you know what? You know, that's not how we act. It's just not how we behave. We're supposed to be people who are loving and kind and thoughtful and considerate. And what's divided them is, you know, they've getting they've gotten all twisted up over some theological things, and how quickly that is, you know, mm-hmm. it's my opinion that matters most. That's that's where I am. And I guess that's kind of where we started this conversation is talking about overcoming our blindness, and maybe this Sunday morning is a good time to just stop and say, hey, I know I th- I believe a lot of stuff and I feel passionate about it, but maybe today if I just pump the brakes. And I just said, I may not know everything. I may have some blind spots. There may be things I'm not seeing that I ought to see. And I could slow down. I could be way more gentle with the people in my world. I could be way more humble with the people in my world. And what I'd really like to be is an ambassador of light. I'd like to share love and care and compassion and grace with others. And I'd like to have less darkness. I don't want to participate in anger and gossiping and slander and, and, and telling the worst story. And I read this and I'm repeating it or I heard this and I'm repeating it. You know, Tony Campolo once said the, the best evidence that Satan is alive and well in the world is that we know what to do that would make us feel better, but we refuse to do it. So today, don't refuse to do it. Go do some things that make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. God bless. We don't talk anymore. We don't talk anymore. We don't talk anymore like we used to do. We don't love anymore. What was all of it for? We don't talk anymore. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.